We are this morning in uh, Psalm 19. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said this is probably the most uh, beautiful psalm in all of the Psalter. Uh, And C.S. Lewis was a language professor, an English professor, versed in these kind of things, and he found here a beauty, uh, a symmetry and a beauty that you don't find everywhere, and that in this psalm, both in the way that it expresses it and the content of what it it expressed, uh, the most beautiful psalm in the Psalter. We're in Psalm 19. It's a psalm about God's voice. Psalm about a God who is not silent. A God who speaks and who speaks in a variety of ways in and to the world. Uh, And that His voice, His Word, is for those who are made in His image the very food of our souls. Psalm 19, hear then the Word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where His voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the very end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber. And like a strong man who runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit from the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of all transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people, and therefore we are a people of the book, the people of your word. You are a God who has spoken, and we want to hear. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. Give us a hunger and a thirst for the word that only comes from you, that we may be satisfied. For we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of revelation? It's a big Christian word, something we've talked quite a bit about. What do you think of when you think of revelation? Do you think of a starry night? Do you think of the sun riding its course through the day? What feelings do you have when you think about reading the Bible? 
And I know, if you're honest with yourself, we have a variety of feelings. Maybe at different seasons in our lives, those feelings will change. But, but there are feelings. When you think about reading the Bible, setting time aside on your, your days to be in the Scripture, there are feelings that are associated with that. But when we think about studying it, doing some of the work of digging into and understanding the Scripture, how important is it to you? What are the feelings that you have towards it? I think it's a, it's a good question. I because as we come into this psalm, we, we are exposed to a man and his love for God's Word. His love and uh, appreciation, his gratitude, his delight, his satisfaction uh, it, with the truth and the power of God's Word and, and what God has given to us in general revelation in the world that is around us and in His very special and deliberate Word in His Scripture. It's written by a man's man. It's poetry. Sometimes it's man, you know, the, you know, the poetry and you know, whether, I don't know where you are with all that, but this is a man's man. David is a warrior. A warrior prince. A man who knows what it is to lead into battle. His exploits are impressive. A man of bravery and depth. He is unashamed of his love for God's Word. Unashamed of his passion for what God has to say here. And when we come to Psalm 19, if you don't know your Psalms very well, Psalm 19 really is a summary of Psalm 119. 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. I don't know if you ever get there. A lot of people skip it because it's so long. And, and it's got one topic, one theme. It just keeps saying something very similar over and over again. It is a celebration of God's Word. It has 22 sections, Psalm 119, 22 sections. Each section, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so, as you read this, it has 22 sections, one for each letter of the alphabet, from Alpha to the end, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. So it goes all the way through, and each section has eight verses, and every verse of that section begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have the Aleph section, and every verse starts with Aleph, the first letter. And then you have the bait section. Eight verses, all that start with it. And he goes all the way through the entire Hebrew alphabet. You know, for us, you get to X and Z, you'd have some trouble getting eight verses that start with X and another eight that start with Z. But he does it. He goes through the alphabet. All of it is, is the most labored, structured, deliberate piece of poetry. The man sat down. Some of these you just feel like the man was, was worshiping and he just started writing his thoughts. And it's just, it's just it's this emotive thing, a capturing of his worship, his prayer. Psalm 119 is a deliberate piece of work where the man spends a long time, the most elaborate long thing in the Bible, celebrating God's Word. Psalm 19 is its summary. And David begins this summary of God's Word and he goes a place that the, uh, the Psalm 119 doesn't really go and he gives this wider view of God's voice. Uh, of the way that God speaks to His people and to the world. Because He speaks also in and through His creation. Right? And creation can tell us some important things. I mean, you can, you can look at things in the way the human body is made and the way that it functions and human relationship and, and the star unite and the, and the sun-filled sky. You can look at these things. There are things. There's real things to be learned there. Real things to be understood. God is speaking in His creation and it is like a book to be read if you're attentive and you take the time 
to, to note and to hear what God is saying. It can tell us some important things. It's real communication. Theologians have called it general revelation. Because there God is revealing Himself to the world. And He does speak. There's a voice in it. What we can see and know by observation. And so the psalmist celebrates this. Starting in verse 1, he says, The heavens declare. They speak with authority about the glory of God. The skies above proclaim. He shouted out that it is His handiwork. That it is the masterwork of, a, of an intelligent designer. Of somebody who is there. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's these words declaring, proclaiming. Day and night there is this consistency of God communicating through His creation. Day to day pours out. Night to night there is this consistency in the night and day rhythm. Day by day, season by season, year by year that speaks of a God of order and power and purpose and beauty. His voice in the creation is a universal voice. Right? He goes on to say in verse 3, there's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. We say that there's no language where this voice doesn't go out. In verse 4, he goes on, he says, the voice goes out to the whole earth. And their words to the end of the world. You know, when you watch romantic movies, it's that whole thing that, you know, when I, I just know wherever you are, you're looking at the same moon I am. Right? Isn't that the, when I look up, I think of you, because I know you're looking at that moon too. Right? But that's what he's saying here. There's nowhere in the world where this voice isn't heard. That This revelation in creation, whether it's the sky and the sun and the moon and its course in the heavens or in the human body or anywhere else, there's nowhere this voice is not heard. It is spoken to the ends of the earth. Everyone sees and hears this communication. It's as clear as day. Clear as the sun in the sky. And so 5 and 6, God's revelation to nature is as clear as day. And He uses the sun as that picture, this beautiful picture of the bridegroom leaving His chamber, right? In them, He has set a tent for the sun. He comes out like the bridegroom leaving His chamber, like a strong man running His course with joy and bright shining, like a day like... This is appropriate today. We would have had to use our imagination at some level to see what He's talking about. But today is the day. From its rising, from the... End of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them. And he says there is nothing that is hidden from its heat. Many of the commentators say, you know, there's an image there that is the sun, in a sense, seeks out and shines on. Have you ever been in a place where there's no shelter and the sun's beating down? Like there's like nowhere to go. There's no way to get away from its, its communication to you. Right? It's beams shining on you. And he says it doesn't matter where you are, there's nowhere you can go to run from this searching, shining light of God as He speaks. And as He moves into the next section, as He speaks about God's special Word and His law, and in the Scripture, that it has that same searching, lighting up and seeking out effect as the sun has. There's no doubt as the psalmist writes this, that there's no doubt in my mind that Paul had this part of Psalm 19 in his mind when he wrote Romans chapter 1. Right? It's there in your bulletin. 
Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes and he says, What can be known about God is plain to them. That is, to the human race across the globe. Why? Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has been speaking to us of His power and His glory since the creation of man and the eyes opened and could see the sun in its course. Such, such a revelation of Himself to us, He says that we are without excuse. Anybody with normal human senses knows there is a God. And they know certain things about Him. His eternal power. His divine nature. <clears throat> we are without excuse for not worshiping Him, for not glorifying Him as God. Right? That's its point, Paul's point in Romans 1. We're without excuse for not worshiping Him and glorifying Him. And so Romans 1.18, that's why he began that section saying, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth that there is a God, that there is a Creator, and that they are therefore accountable, that life does have meaning and purpose, but then it also has boundaries and limits, that it also has, there are responsibilities and accountabilities and things that exist by virtue of the fact that there is a God. And we suppress this truth that we might live in our own freedom, in rebellion against the One who pours forth every day the knowledge of His existence and His right as our Creator. We rebel and suppress the truth. Creation, though it tells us a lot, and it makes us without excuse, is not enough. It doesn't tell us everything that we need to know. It doesn't give us a knowledge of Christ. You can't on a starry night arrive at God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Living the life that I failed to live and dying the death that I deserve to die. That in Him by faith we might be saved. We cannot arrive at a saving knowledge of God through creation. We can't think our way there. Logic our way there. Study our way there. We need a further word. Even though every day pours forth speech. It's not a speech that will save us. And so Romans goes on, and it's as Paul presents all this, the guilt of man as God reveals himself. And by Romans chapter 10, he says in verse 14, How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, by a further word, another word, a special word. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. As he transitions, some have seen just a really abrupt transition here between God's general revelation where He speaks through verse 6 and in verse 7 where He turns without really transition to say, the law of the Lord. This is a word that comes by the mouth of a prophet in a language that we understand. It's not a general word. It's a specific word. It's a clear word. It's a do not word. A do this 
Word. I am like this Word. It's a self-revelation of a person speaking to us. Special revelation is a term that we use to go from creation to this written Word. It, it describes not only the written Word, but the, but the Word incarnate. <clears throat> we would say that, that special revelation is that Word that God speaks into, into our lives, into our hearing in a way that we can understand it in very clear human language that is written and in the incarnation in Christ who is the living Word. The Word of God made flesh. So that the words not only of His mouth, but the life that He lives is a revelation of who God is and what God is doing. Of course, as the psalmist is writing this, Jesus has not yet come. When he's writing this, most of the Old Testament hasn't been written. Right? David is the psalmist in this psalm. David lived about 1,000 B.C. Most of you know he was the second king, you know, only after Saul. Uh, and and uh, so he's the second king, so all the books of the kings, of the histories, and the chronicles haven't been written. Most of the prophets prophesied during their reigns and post-reign and in the exile. And the post- so all the prophets aren't here yet, all the kings, all those histories aren't here yet. So the, the, the piece of Scripture that David has in his hand as he's writing all this is the, is the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and maybe, we'll just have to guess, you know, that he has Joshua and Judges and, and Ruth, you know, that he's got a chunk of Scripture in his hands. Now imagine, though, the heart of David, the heart of an Israelite, who only has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is probably where you spend the least amount of time. I'm just guessing. And maybe Judges and, and Joshua and Judges. And he is celebrating that God has spoken. That He has spoken into the world. That He has spoken into His life and the life of Israel. That He has spoken with clarity. And He celebrates what God has given in a way that few of us can even really identify with. The psalmist delights in what God has done. Right, The law of the Lord is perfect. And it revives my soul. Right? The testimony of God, the Word He has spoken, it is sure. And it makes wise the simple which is us. The precepts of the Lord, they are righteous. All together, they rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord, it is a pure Word. And so it brings light to the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. They're to be desired more than gold. Can you imagine writing this and meaning it? That's the hard part. Because many of us can wax eloquent. It's having the heart there. Meaning it. He uses all these synonyms, and they're just synonyms. Don't read too far into the different words. He uses law, testimony, precepts, commands, even the fear of the Lord, the rules. These are all just different ways of of artistically, poetically talking about God's Word. And he just just stacks up all the different words that he uses uh, to to describe it. And then he talks about all the different benefits that it has. This is God's Word spoken to us. It revives the soul. We're going to see in a minute as you get toward the end when he turns to prayer. I think that it revives us all by bringing conviction. By calling us to repentance. By showing us the path of righteousness. 
which is as he turns in verse 12 and 13, this is his deep concern as he wants revival in his soul. Right? It makes wise the simple. Now who are the simple? Simple here simply, it means simply those who are unlearned. The simple are those who don't know. It's not that they can't know or that they don't have the capacity to know. It's just that we don't know. We're ignorant. I'm ignorant of many things. Right? When it comes to uh, astrophysics, I'm, I'm fairly simple. I got a couple ideas. You know, there's Orion, <laughs> and those are stars. <clears throat> you know, it, I'm pretty simple because I don't know. But I, it's not that I couldn't learn. I could study astrophysics. I'd probably do all right with it. You know, it's, but this is it. Who is it? It makes wise the simple. Those who don't know who need to be taught concerning the things of God, who He is, and the world He has made, what He cares about, what is right and what is wrong according to the One who created the world in a, and created and wove in a moral fabric into it. It makes wise those who don't know. Particularly in our fallenness. When our knowing is darkened. and We don't know what we think we know. It brings joy to the heart because it reveals the God who is. It brings joy to the heart because it speaks forgiveness in the way of of mercy and because it shows us the path to peace with God. And so you have throughout even those early books of the Bible, those first ones, believe it or not, the Gospel is there. The way of salvation is there. That God gives His law and He gives His Word and He says, do this and you shall live. And then even as He hands them this and says, do this and you shall live, then He says, okay, but you're not going to do this and you're going to die. So here's the law of sacrifice. Here's what you do when you fail. When you fail, you must, you need a substitute. When you fail, you need someone who will shed their blood for you. Who will die in your place. So that because of the substitute's death, in your place, and their blood shed for you, I will forgive you and have mercy upon your soul. Now we don't know until the New Testament, we don't know till later, that the Lamb, when He tells Abraham, you know, stay your hand, don't slay the boy, God will provide the Lamb. That ultimately that Lamb, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is Jesus Christ. But even, even these guys, even David holding only this, knows that apart from substitute shedding his blood and him trusting that God will forgive him on the basis of that shed blood and substitution, he is lost. And it is God's mercy to accept such a sacrifice that He would make Him right so that He can press on seeking the beauty. Because the the, the problem isn't the law. Even Paul will come out and say the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not in the law. The problem is in you and me who don't keep the law because of our brokenness, our fallenness, our sinfulness. And even as we are redeemed, we struggle after Christ by His grace. He gives us a whole other group of words touching something that he describes as, verse 7, perfect and sure. In verse 8, right and pure. In verse 9, something that is clean and righteous. Right? He finds in God's Word, even in His commands, even in the law, He finds something that is real, something that is objective, something that is solid, something that is 
right. He finds true truth. True rightness. Something our world desperately needs. Adrift in a sea of opinion. C.S. Lewis says it this way, their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness. Like a pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has entangled him in muddy fields. Right? And then having slogged through right, the slick mud of the world's moral anarchy that's going on and their truth decay and we don't know what's true and there's no objective truth and there's only your truth and, and after slugging through the off-road swamp and you set on solid ground and you say, yes. <laughs> right? Something solid, something sure, something right. And you can taste it. Right? There's a taste and see thing that about God's law and His Word. There's a solidity to His Word. And it makes God's Word valuable like nothing else. Right? And this is where He goes from here. Right? The most valuable and desirable thing in the world. More than anything else. Right? You listen to His language. More to be desired are His commands, even His law, His commands, more are they to be desired than gold. Even than much fine gold. So much gold, a lot of gold. Cargo ship full of gold. Fine gold, that's refined gold. You know, gold is refined at varying levels. You can buy 14 karat gold. And it has a value to it because it has a certain amount of impurities in it. And, and not impurities, but they put in other metals to make it stronger. You want to make jewelry out of it and you don't want it to bend all up. You've got to, put, you've got to put an alloy in it to make it stronger. And so it has a certain percentage of not gold in it that makes it strong. 14 karat. But 24 karat gold is far more valuable. Because I don't know how much the percentage is, but it's purer. But it's also softer and you can't do as much with it. But it's much fine, refined gold. That is, it has no alloys, no impurities. Much, a lot of pure gold. Really? <laughs> you're saying, you're telling me that the law of God, even in the Ten Commandments and in you know, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy and in there, you're trying to tell me that this is more valuable than a cargo ship full of refined gold? Hyperbole? Exaggeration for effect? I believe the psalmist means it. And I believe we should mean it. God's Word is more valuable, more important, more profitable for us. It is more profitable for us to soak in the Scriptures than to pursue more money. But we often choose the path of more money than time and space and margins in our life Soaking His Word, which revives our souls and makes us wise where we're simple, right? Which brings joy to the heart. You know, the place where joy and satisfaction and life and truth and health are found. And we, we don't value it. We value the pursuits of this world far more. We will spend money and hard work to get degrees, to get more money, to make a way in this world and to get more. But the question is, do we value God's Word in the same way? Would we put the same effort, the same time and effort into God's Word as we do into these other things? 
more than the treasures of this world? Is it precious? Is it treasure? Is it that without which we are lost? If you had to choose between a cargo ship of gold or never having a Bible in your life, if you don't choose the Bible, you are a fool. We've become so used to having a Bible around. Familiarity breeds contempt. He says it's sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey on the comb. And now some of you will be saying, well, you know, honey's alright. I like it here and there. I don't, you know. You've got to put yourself in a world in the Middle East where there's no sugar cane, no refined sugar, no candy, no baked goods, no ice cream, no, what, what is your sweet thing? None. Doesn't exist. There's nothing. Right? There's salt. A lot of salt. So Samson finds honey in the rotting carcass of a lion. And it says he scoops out handfuls. I, mean, I, I know people who would cringe. I mean, the rotting corpse of a lion there long enough that the bees have set up shop and produced honey. And then he comes along and... Honey! <laughs> like, you know, this doesn't... You know, this, this taste, this sweetness, it just doesn't exist in our experience. You know, I've had enough of salt. You know, game and whatever else. Like, honey, sweetness. And so the psalmist says it's like sweeter than honey in a honeycomb. Just another way of saying it's like fresh air after choking on exhaust in a closed garage. You know, it's like pure water after drinking from a stagnant pond. Right? There's a sweetness, a freshness. There is, yes, factor to it. Lewis says this is the, the language of a man who is ravished by moral beauty. There's a moral beauty in God's Word. If we cannot at all share His experience, we shall be the losers. So that this morning is where I'm going is that we would catch the heart of the psalmist. That we would understand the gift that God has given. That we would value and love His Word for what it is. That it would take up its place in our life and our devotion. That it not only deserves, but that it is necessary for us. The law of the Lord warns and rewards in verse 11. It, it, By them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Right? There's a necessary warning that keeps us from a hell of problems in time and eternity. And in them, he says, there is great reward. There is eternal reward in knowing and submitting ourselves to God and His Word. The psalmist ends by turning this celebration into a prayer. Right, So when you move to verse 12, he begins to pray. Who can discern his errors? Who knows what they don't know? Do you know what you don't know? Think about it. You can't know. We don't know what we don't know. In other words, who can discern his errors? They're errors. <laughs> and errors are self-deceiving. And we believe our own lies. And we are deceived and self-justifying. Who can discern his errors before the Lord? There's no greater gift than that God would speak into our lives and show us the error of our ways. 
Declare me innocent of hidden faults and also keep your servant from presumptuous sins that they would not reign over me. Right? Both from those secret faults, they can be those things I don't, you know, errors that I make that I don't make or sins that I commit that I didn't know it was sin when I did it or wasn't thinking or there are, or they can just be the hidden faults of my heart that no one else sees but keep me from sins that are hidden from I but also presumptuous sins. Those sins that we know it's sin and we do it anyway. Let not such sin rule over us. Have dominion over us. And it is only as I am delivered from the error of my ways in it's not only in my thinking but that God would deliver me then I will be blameless. We want to be free. We want to be pure. We want to be Right, we want to be what God has created and designed us to be. Do you know your own heart? Are you right in your own eyes? You need to open your Bible and let God speak to you. Page by page and book by book, we are often blind and hardened and deceived. Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so I love this. This was one of those choruses we sang back in the 80s. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, my rock. That solid ground on which I can stand and my salvation. Your Word that is a saving Word in Christ ultimately. The Word is... I'll leave you with these three quick verses. Comparing it to food, which is where we've been going. God's Word for us then is not this extra thing. It is not something we can take or leave. It's not something we put on the shelf and take down when we want. The way God presents it to us is that it is, that it is the very lifeblood of His people. Um, it is that which revives our souls. It gives joy to our hearts that you know, makes us wise where we don't know what we don't know. It is that thing which endures and teaches us the fear of the Lord that drives us in the path of righteousness and out of the way of sin. And he compares it to food. The Scripture, I love the way that it does this. Let me just run these three. In Amos 8.11 it says, I will send a famine through the land. A famine not for food or for thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. In other words, why is this so devastating? That He would deprive His people of His Word. To be deprived of God's Word. What's, why is this a famine? Well, because Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us this, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives spiritually by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, he's saying this is, the Bible's not like food. It is food. Right? Like food for the body, so there is food for the soul. And he says to be deprived of it, which we sometimes do to ourselves, we starve ourselves to be deprived of it, is to starve ourselves of the nutrients of a healthy spiritual life and relationship with God. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is revealed to us in His Word. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst, who have an appetite, who have an instinct and an impulse for life, because you who hunger will be satisfied. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true, that it is a sure Word. 
That is a Word that brings life and health and peace. That revives our souls and brings joy to our hearts. Oh God, would You create in us a hunger and a thirst for Your Word. Teach us the treasure that it is. Show us who are simple and have not gotten it. That this Bible that we hold in our hands is more valuable than a cargo ship of refined gold. It is a treasure that You have given. Father, let us steward it well. Let us feast on it regularly. Let it fill our souls and our minds and so that our lives would be shaped and formed according to Your Word. For the good of Your people and the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.